up y'all and welcome to another episode of worldly church girl it's your girl your host lillian harshaw on today's show i have christian hip-hop artist he is an author the pastor of the phenomenal multicultural diverse church in tampa florida called crossover church tommy urban d colony from a child from philly who ran from his calling to being a pastor of a church of what uh outreach magazine calls america's most innovative churches you have a bachelor's in pastoral theology you're a pastor of a multi-ethnic multi-generational multi-class church for over 15 years now have you been featured in USA Today, Newsweek, CBS, BET, and probably some other places that I have no idea about, but you've just been <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> you're an author of four books. You're a publisher of your own magazine. You're on your own TV show. And you also host conferences to help other leaders in the ministry. Your plate is beyond full. Let's just say that. <laughs> you just read all that, and I'm, I'm just getting tired. I'm like, man, you know all that? Man, I need to go take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to start with your growing up and your childhood. Did you see yourself in the ministry or did you just go kicking and screaming? Yeah, so I grew up in Philly and I'm a PK. And if you don't know what that church lingo is, that stands for pastor's kid. You know, there was people that were always like coming up to me saying, yeah, you're going to be like your father when you grow up. You're going to be a pastor. And I'll be like, no, you know. (laughs) And so, yeah, I was that guy that went kicking and screaming. I didn't really want to have anything to do with it. I'm like, if I just go to church, you'll be lucky, you know. <laughs> but uh, and it's not it's not that I saw my 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 dad or my family do anything that they shouldn't have. They were always great and uh, great godly role models. But I just saw the pressure and the stress that it, it could bring, and even just some of the stuff my my dad and mom had to go through, you know, navigating leading a church. And I was like, yeah, I don't want none of that. Like, I'm good, you know. And so uh, I didn't see myself. I had some rebellious years, believed in God, but was rebelling as a teenager. But when I was uh, 18, 19 years old, that was a season when God really began to get a hold of me and went back to my spiritual roots and felt a calling to go into urban ministry. And so, you know, I went to Bible college and started to figure out what those next steps would look like. And when you graduated after you got your uh, bachelor's degree, you and your wife started a youth ministry at Crossover. What was that like to start something so innovative, especially in 96, where everybody was still in that wonderful Christian box? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. um, Well, the cool thing about it was, so we had planned on going back up north. I'm from Philly. My wife's from New York City. And so we met at Bible College in Florida. And so, you know, we liked Florida, but we're like, eh, you know, we're going back up north, but God had different plans. And so those of you that are listening to this today, you can have your plans, but hey, you got to make sure it's God's plans. And um, I tried to make some plans for God and didn't work out so good. So God brought us to Tampa and it was a young urban church plant that was just a few years old. There was about 40, 40 adults, mostly older. There was only one teenage girl that was in the church and they wanted to launch a youth ministry because they had a strong children's ministry and they did outreach and the housing projects. They did this thing called sidewalk Sunday school. But when those kids would become, 
you know, young teenagers, they would fade out and they would lose them because the church didn't have anything for them. And so, you know, they said, we want you to come in and create a youth ministry, you know, here in the urban context and you have full freedom to do whatever. And so, you know, pastors and leaders can say that you have freedom, but then when you start to do some things that are out the box, then they might like call you in for the meeting. Well, it was, you know, listen, for real, I never had that conversation. My pastor back then, like he was, he was wild. He had an earring. Yeah. Yeah. Tattoos. This was in the nineties. And this guy was like in his late forties, you know? And so he oh, was, he was a revolutionary <laughs> more radical in some ways than I was, you know? And so, um, but yeah, they really gave us freedom to try new things and do new things. And so, uh, I was into basketball. So we did a basketball league that I organized and every kid that played in it, I raised money from businesses to buy them a brand new pair of sneakers. So the deal was playing this basketball league that's free. And if you finish the the four week, you know, league or six week league, I think it was in the beginning, um, then you get a free pair of Nikes. And so, you know, all these kids from the hood were like, yo, let's go. You know, about 80 kids that signed up and about 60 kids completed it. Uh, And we did this big awards ceremony at the church um, in a church service where we presented them with their sneakers and their families came and, you know, and that's really how I built my youth group. Um, they knew me as coach and DJ because I would bring the sound system out and play Christian hip hop. They knew me as that before they knew me as youth pastor. And so that's how I, I grew the youth ministry. And within the first year, the youth ministry became larger than the church in numbers. Um, remember, the church only had about 40 people coming on Sundays, adults. And we had more than that by the end of the year coming to the youth ministry and then fast forward over the next few years, it grew to where we had hundreds that were coming um, every Thursday night. And so sports and music, you know, we started doing hip hop concerts and events. Uh, sports and music were the two big things we used to, to reach the next generation for Christ. You had to have been overwhelmed by the response that all these young people were coming in, in droves like that. You had to have been. Yeah, we were... We were overwhelmed at times. We were excited, but then like, oh my gosh, because there was some times when I remember the one season, I think it was 1999, and our youth ministry was running about 70 or 80 at the time. And we only had about, you know, we were, I was just really starting to build a solid leadership team. There was probably about 10 of us, nine or 10 of us, including me and my wife that were like solid. And then, um, we did a couple of big events because we were learning how to promote and like do flyers and we had a street team. And so we did a couple of big events and we had like 250 teenagers come. And then like the next week there was like still like over 200 because we yeah. thought, okay, well, this was just an event. We'll go back down to under a hundred again. No, the next week we were at over 200 still. And it stayed like that. And so we just had this suddenly had this huge learning curve because the youth ministry more than doubled you know, at this one season and, you know, we didn't have enough leaders and, you know, all these new kids were there. And when you have so many new kids in the mix and they don't, you know, know how to maybe respect it, it got a little wild. Mm-hmm. You know, there fights. There was, these were unchurched kids, a lot of <laughs> were, you know, busting them in from the housing projects and from different projects. And so they'd be wanting to like have, you know, fight against the different neighborhoods. And so, yeah, it was, it was challenging at some moments, but God was moving in the services um, kids were coming to Jesus. We're praying for kids, you know, and the way we presented it. So our, our praise and worship in the beginning, 
we used to we tried to have a guy on the keyboard and tried to do worship with kind of an urban flavor, but it just wasn't working. These kids just, you know, they were unchurched. They had no right. church. Kid. They didn't know what worship was. And I was tempted to say, maybe we should just, shouldn't just do we we shouldn't just do worship. Maybe we'll just do a rap song and we'll have a game and we'll do the message. And these kids just don't know how to worship. I was about to give up on worship, but the Lord really put in my heart, like, no, don't give up on worship. There's a breakthrough that's about to happen. Yes. And this young guy started coming and uh, he was a DJ and he said, hey, man, I just got some turntables. What if I bring my turntables and maybe we can match up some beats with some worship songs and maybe the kids will be into that because worship ain't working right now. And I was like, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try anything because what we're doing now is not working. Right. So next week, you know, he came a little early, got with our guy that was the singer to lead worship, and they matched up some of the same worship songs we were doing, but he matched them up with hip hop and R and B beats. And so, man, like the kids that night, they lit up. And so, you know, normally we would do two songs, and after the first song, they'd all sit down, and we'd be like, "No, stand up, we got one more song." Well, this night we did our two songs, and when we ended, they were all still standing, and they're all like, yo, let's sing another one. And we were looking at each other like, what? <laughs> Same group of kids? Right. Driving the kids home that night, and they're actually singing these worship songs in the van. And it's because musically now it connected with them. Right. And so that was like one of those aha moments. And so we've used a DJ in all of our church services since 1998. And so wow. if you come to our church on a Sunday morning, we have a built-in DJ booth with a DJ on the stage. And when you walk in, the DJ is spinning music um, during the announcements and the offering. He's spinning like an instrumental bed. Even when I come out and start preaching, sometimes he starts out with a little beat to kind of, you know, give it some vibe. And um, yeah, when everyone leaves, you know, the, the DJ spinning as everyone's walking out. <clears throat> so it's a real celebratory type of atmosphere. And um, that's just kind of been a staple and it just works really well. So moving forward, January 2002, you get to be the lead pastor of the church. Yeah, I don't get to. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> so the leadership and the pastor stepped to me and they were like, listen, the youth ministry is going so well. Why don't you just take over? And I mean, I had these conversations multiple times. And I'm always like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I don't have time to do that. The youth Wait, ministry what? is like booming and... I was a hip hop artist and in 1999 I got signed to a record label. So I was regularly traveling. Um, you know, I didn't go on t per se like tours uh, for weeks or months, but I would do like several one-offs um, right. where I, you know, they'd fly me out for, I'd do that, you know, at least two or three, sometimes four or five times a month. And I would fly to a different city, do a concert, you know, do some ministry, fly back, you know? And so I, I would rarely ever miss our church services, you know, so I'd usually do that on like Fridays and Saturdays. And that was really like my job that was providing income for my family because the church was small and in the urban context and they weren't always able to pay me consistently. And even when they paid me, it was really kind of like a part-time, you know, job. Right. So I was kind of like a glorified volunteer, but my heart and passion was there and I could have went full-time with my music and would have made a lot more money and had a lot more less stress, right? But mm -hmm. God always like put it in my heart. He never gave me the green light to do that. And I loved what I was doing, you know, with, with the youth and the young adults. And so, you know, so I was wrestling with that, me and my wife for, for a while. And finally, towards the end of 2001, 
that's when God was like, no, you need to step into this role. So finally, I told the church leadership, okay, I'll do it for a little while until we find the next person. Because the pastor was burned out. And um, he was bivocational. He didn't get paid anything. Mm -hmm. And so he was burned out. He had like two other jobs. And, you know, and so um, so I stepped into the role. And within a few months, I was like, um, I think we found him. It's me. <laughs> like I'm the guy. It's me. I'm supposed to do this. And so the biggest asset we had was we didn't have a lot of people on Sundays. There were still about 40 people, but most of them were young adults now because the, the demographics had shifted over those first six years. And uh, we didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of money, but our biggest asset was freedom. So we got to reshape and redream and rethink of what you know, the urban church could look like to reach unchurched and de-churched, you know, um, people, especially young adults that were um, elusive to the church. You know, most churches are trying to figure out how do we reach the under 40 crowd? Well, I was 28 when I took over the church um, in 2002. And so wow. it was, um, you know, I, w I was still in my 20s and I was even wondering, is anybody over 28 going to even come to this church and follow me as their pastor? But surprisingly, in that first year, there were several people that jumped in that were in their 30s and 40s. And, you know, they were influenced by hip hop and urban culture and they just loved the vibe. And um, they were all in. And then, you know, then we started to reach some parents and some grandparents. And, you know, we loved those people and, and, and valued them and honored them. And, and so our church is multi generational. It does skew younger, but um, we have all ages that come. Our oldest member is 101. Oh, praise God. God yeah. bless her. Or him? Yeah. Is it him or her? It's a, it's a him. African wow. American dude that's 101, wow. and he generally still walks without a cane. I mean, he's in great shape. And I understand how you reached the grandparents and the parents because they saw the difference in their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives. And they had to have been like, well, what's different? What happened? Yes. Yeah. This church. Now, did you ever think that your church would be like the flagship, if you will, of innovative churches? Um, not really, but I mean, at the same time, we knew we were doing some stuff that was out of the box. And, uh, in 1999, when I got signed to uh, a national record label inside of the CD jacket, uh, remember CDs? Yes. Back <laughs> good times. <laughs> yeah, right? Remember stores? We used to have to go to a music I store. I know. So actual record store, those were, that, actually, I miss record stores like that. I do too. I used to love to browse and, you know, look through all the, I, I like looking at the artwork. Yeah. Anyway, um, inside of my CD jacket, I had a picture with me and my youth group, me and my wife and the youth group behind me. And, you know, there's about 200 kids in the picture. And there, there was a paragraph under it just, you know, talked about the hip hop styled, you know, youth ministry and the services and the concerts and the basketball league and all the unique things we were doing. So because that album was in stores nationally and uh, people started buying it left and right, and they were seeing that suddenly we started to get a wave of phone calls, emails, and people physically visiting us. Like literally every week, there'd be people visiting our youth service and even our Sunday service because Florida is like a vacation mecca. So right. people like, yo, I'm going to Orlando, you know, to, to Disney or I'm going to the beach, you know, and let's go to Urban D's church. You know, let's make that <laughs> part of our trip. So that became like this thing where all these people were coming to visit us and see what we were doing. And so quickly we realized like, wow, 
like we have something that's happening here that no one else is doing in the country and people need need to learn like we can help duplicate this and so you know so we started a conference in the year 2000 called Flavor Fest and it's an urban leadership conference really to to help you know church leaders pastors church planners youth pastors and artists you know influencers in the city to to be better at at ministry and mission and even marketplace cuz you know that we even have classes on entrepreneurship and all that uh, that's developed a little more recently but um so over the course of the last uh, 20 years doing flavor fest we've trained over 5000 leaders and so you know as time went on we realized like yeah we have a voice we have a responsibility god is doing something special here and the difference with kingdom and corporate is in corporate everybody has this trademarked proprietary you know, secret formula, secret recipe, right? They don't want to share mm-hmm. that with them. But in kingdom, you know, we, we need to share what we're learning. We need to share what's been a win uh, and help other ministries and other leaders around the country. And hopefully they'll take it and they'll make it even better than what we did. You know, so I love to help people and see them win even bigger than us. You know, so there's been several church planners that I've been able to train, you know, along the journey that I've done coaching and consulting and I've watched them be able to, in the first year or two, be able to be way far ahead of where we were in the first year or two. Because we didn't have anybody that was a model to look at or any right. like loop. And so, you know, it's been great. You know, we feel a responsibility. We're a teaching church. The four books that you've written, one of them probably stands out more than anything, especially with everything that's going on right now. Love our city, learning to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Yeah. With all this that's going on right now what could you share with people yeah so that book you know i wrote it in 2018 and it came out at the end of 2018 and our church actually went through it together in 2019 and it's actually a 30-day devotional book and so it's something that you know is is great to go to get to to go go through together with a group of people and every seven days there's a small group video that you can watch on youtube and there's some fill in the blanks. There's a discussion guide. Every day, there's actually some space to journal of what God is kind of speaking to you. Um, so we started doing this thing called Love Our City in 2017. And I had this crazy dream. I came to my staff and I said, hey, guys, you know, we do a lot of outreach and it's great, but we only have about 20 percent, maybe 30 percent of our church that gets involved in it. And the other group of people are just on the bench. You know, and they might be cheering, but like we, we need to get more people involved. And so I said, what if we did an entire instead of one day of, of when we do a back to school jam or some kind of outreach? I said, what if we did an entire week of serving projects? And I, I believe like what if we had 500 people serve and we did 50 projects? And so, you know, my team was like, what? We never had 500 people do anything before at one time, you know, and they're like in 50 projects. What will we come up with? So, you know, we put a whiteboard up and I said, well, hey, who lives within a three to four mile radius of our church campus? Like, give me the demographics. And so we started to list the people groups up there. So we have um, we have college students. We have, you know, business people. We have young families. We have people in poverty. We have single moms. We have homeless people. We have immigrants. We, you know, so we started We have senior citizens. So we started listing all these people groups and we said, listen, if we're going to love our city, we want to love all of our city, yes. not one particular demographic. And many times the, the church, the capital C church, 
when we think of an outreach, a lot of times, let's be honest, it boils down to it's the church giving away stuff to poor people. Yes. Right? yes. You know, now, in that neighborhood. We need to do that because a lot of yeah. churches don't. We need yeah. to reach the least of these and give away food and backpacks and all that. But but what about the family that doesn't have kids? They don't need a backpack. They don't need a toy at Christmas. Or what about the middle class family that has kids, but they don't need the assistance? You know, how do you reach them? How do you reach affluent people? How do you, you know, because they need they need the love of Jesus as well. So, you know, we began to brainstorm and put projects together that could reach each one of those demographics from, you know, appreciation lunches for teachers and firefighters and police officers and clinic workers to pay it forward projects that can reach all demographics from we're giving, we're buying everybody's coffee at Starbucks, which they don't need us to do that, but they'll take it um, to, you know, we're going to the laundromat and we're paying for everybody's laundry and the people there, man, that's a blessing. They need that, you know, but you know, all these different demographics were able to reach, you know, through all these different, you know, unique projects. And so, you know, so we, we, we did that in 2017. And instead of 500 people showing up, we had 600 people show up and we ended up doing 70 projects in 2018. Um, we leveled up, we did 107 projects with a thousand people. And in 2019, we did 152 projects with uh, over 1500 people and several hundred people served that don't even go to our church. They were friends from people's jobs and companies came in as team building projects and they sponsored a project and then they brought their team to come and serve. And so in 2019, we had 95% of the projects, uh, which was like a $30,000 budget. 95% of it was paid for through corporate sponsors. Um, oh, that didn't wow. happen right away, but it was like, as we built this reputation and we figured out how to market it to companies and we you know, got community partners involved and business leaders in the church, they donated from their companies. And um, so it was just amazing. So as people watch this, you know, everyone started to call me that follows me on social media and follows our church and was like, hey, man, you got to teach us how to do Love Our City. And so <laughs> I started doing workshops and webinars and, you know, consulting on that. And then eventually that's when God put on my heart, this is your next book. You need to do a book. And so I started writing the book and then I was at the Purpose Driven Conference uh, in the summer of 2018, the book was like three quarters of the way written. And I was just there to receive me and my wife and Pastor Rick Warren, um, his number two guy came to me and said, Hey, Pastor Rick wants you to teach with him this afternoon. Um, here's his notes. Can you do it? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> pastor's there. and so I'm just You're like, like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, uh, Oh, it's in like in two hours from now, you know, and I'm like, um, speak with the pastor Rick Warren, like the number one selling author in the world, you know, and uh, I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, 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 I'll do it, you know, <laughs> and normally I'm not nervous, like I could jump up and you could at the drop of a dime, I could get up and preach on something that's in my back pocket. You know, I could preach on Love Our City or, or Rebuild or something I'm passionate about, but they're like, here's Pastor Rick's notes teach this, you know? And so you talk you about two hours. Go. <laughs> talk about pressure. It was pressure, but God, um, God helped me. And, uh, it went, it went amazing. And, uh, they invited me to actually come back and speak, uh, in 2019 at the conference. And I had a couple months notice that time. So it was good. But, um, but at that conference, that's when God kind of spoke to me and said, uh, turn this book into a 30 day devotional book, not, not an instructional book, but a devotional book. And so the bottom line is it really helps people instead of just doing a serving project and it's a one hit wonder, 
but for people to really get the theology deep down in their heart to learn the words of Jesus. What does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? And so the book really kind of walks through like, why don't we do that more often? What's the problem? And then what's the solution? How do we get there? And then of course the book talks about a lot of the, you know, things that we do with the serving projects and encourages the people that are reading it to come up with a service project with their small group or, you know, if their church is doing it together and it kind of walks them through and gets them ready, you know, so the action step after they finish the book or towards the end of the book is to do this, you know, serving week and to do a serving project or two. And so, uh, so it's been amazing. We created this leaders box kit for other churches that has all the tools and details in it on how churches can, you know, do love our city from A to Z, how to put the projects together, how to raise the money, how to recruit the volunteers. Um, and, um, also, you know, how to, you know, so everybody we touch at all these projects, they get an invite card to the love our city party. And the party is that Sunday at church. And so we have hundreds and hundreds of new visitors that come to church that weekend. And, uh, we've had hundreds of people start a relationship with Jesus on that Sunday, the last few years and, uh, over a hundred people get baptized. And so it's, it's been amazing. So we're watching this movement really start to spread, you know, throughout, you know, throughout the country as over 200 other churches have gotten a box kit. And now with COVID, you know, and, and the racial, you know, injustice that we've seen more than ever, like this is a great resource. So as churches begin to reopen, you know, they can do love our city, take their church through the book and then do this big serving week and reach their neighbor. And many times your neighbor, one of the core things of the book is that many times your neighbor is different than you and that's okay. God can use you to reach your neighbor that's different. On your YouTube channel, you did a post with with a few of your um, church members about George Floyd and what's going on right now. Yeah. Can you share that again? Because I absolutely loved it, especially because it was coming from three different, well, four if you include you, four different viewpoints of the feeling and the reaction of that. And I loved your raw honesty about it, too. I'm going to put that out there, too. But... Yeah, can you share that with everyone, please? Sure, Lily. I'm you. You did. I'm impressed. You did your research. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> watching everything and watching what we're doing lately. Yeah. So, we were doing a series on the Book of James, and we entitled it "Not Everything You're Counting Counts," because you know James talks about count it all joy, even when you go through troubles. Yeah. And normally we don't count joys as you know, uh, we don't count troubles as joy, or it could right. bring joy, right? But everybody's counting stuff right now. Um, you know, they're counting the the death toll from the virus, the infection rate, counting the unemployment numbers, and then of course people are personally counting, you know, their feelings, their um, their freedoms, their finances. You know, and 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 so with that series, we were going through the Book of James, and chapter two, uh, it just so happened that the week that everything happened with George Floyd, um, all that popped off. And we were in chapter two. And if you're familiar with James chapter two, it talks about prejudice and favoritism. And so it just fit in absolutely perfect. The Lord lined that up. And we were going to talk about the the stuff with the Mott Arbery that week anyways. But then the George Floyd stuff happened. And that night before um, the the message actually aired, which was uh, the very beginning, uh, end of May, beginning of June, there was a bunch of protests that turned violent right in our neighborhood. And um, there was, you know, some riots and looting and burned burn buildings right on our street. 
and our church was right in the middle of that. And so people were really leaning in like, oh my gosh, is the church building okay? And praise God, our church was untouched. I mean, God protected and the neighborhood respected. (laughs) You know, the neighborhood knows what we do and how we love our city. We've been feeding thousands of families even since the pandemic started with groceries and hot meals. And so, you know, that's, we just, we went right into action with that. Um, But so that message, um, I preached it from in front of the courthouse because we wanted to talk about justice. And uh, then I walked down the block to the park and I met up with a diverse panel from our church. And we had a, you know, a young Hispanic young lady that's 19 years old. So we wanted to hear from the next generation and, and how she's feeling. Uh, then um, uh, a white guy that's in his late 50s that goes to our church like a tech, he runs a tech company, you know, well-to-do guy, um, but he's actually married to um, a bohemian. So his wife is black and his kids are mixed. And so just to talk to someone like him that's grown up in, you know, having a mixed family and some of the stuff that he's had to navigate. And then the other person that was part of the panel was um, a guy that goes to our church, an African-American guy in his late 20s. And he was a former uh, USF football player uh, star. And then he actually uh, was signed to the Bucks, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and played with them briefly. And so he's a real big guy. And just he shared a story of some stuff that he went through with police and where he was in a car accident, some lady hit him and then he called the police to come and they were like, interrogating um, him. Yeah. Interrogating him and helping her. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm the one that got hit, you know? And the guy's like, just give me your license. And, you know, and so he's, you know, he carries, he has his, you know, permit to carry. And so he told the cop, the cops walking with him to the car. And he said, Hey, listen, my license is in my glove compartment. I have a, you know, concealed weapon permit and I have a weapon, you know, in my glove compartment. So if you want to go ahead and just take my license out of there so I don't have to touch anything. And the cop was like, no, you, you, you can go ahead and get it. And but as he's reaching for it, he looks and sees the cop is like pulling his gun out. And he's like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, he's right. like, I feel scared for my life right now. Like, what are you doing? He's like, no, nah, just get just get your license. Don't do anything stupid. He's like, man, I called you like right. I thing here like you can take my license i'm not you know and so anyways it's just you know that kind of stuff that you know people of color have to go through regularly and many times people don't don't even realize people that aren't of color don't realize what that pressure and what those circumstances and experiences can feel like uh when you go through that on a regular basis it's exhausting and then when you see you know more and more stuff on social media of, of people being you know murdered Uh, or people being uh, falsely accused and interrogated and treated wrong and all that stuff. It's just, it's been a, it's been a heavy season. So it's been the virus. And then there's this, you know, the second wave of all this injustice. And I think it was just a pressure cooker. And so the church, like we have to talk about it. You know, our church has been talking about this stuff uh, from the jump, but uh, it's good to see that the capital C church, even a lot of white evangelical churches and leaders they're beginning to finally wake up and talk about this. And uh, I've had a lot of phone calls with a lot of white pastors that call me, that trust me, and um, have been picking my brain. And, you know, because they're beginning to finally have these conversations on Sundays uh, with their church now, which is which is definitely, definitely needed. Yeah, because I actually saw the news footage of you getting interviewed when, they, when that incident happened next to your church. Yeah. And you boldly told the interviewer how you felt about 
everything that's going on. You don't see that too often because usually when the same race is having a conversation, they shy away and they try to make it seem like they don't want to show too much empathy, just enough, but not completely to seem like they're rooting for the other side, if you will. Yeah. But you were just bold-facedly flat-footed and was like, look, these are the stands that we need to make. These are the things that we need to do on our end as a whole, as a community, and show each other empathy for one another. Yeah. Um, how was the response from the people in your area when they saw that interview? Yeah, um, for that particular interview, it was uh, it was wonderful. Uh, a lot of people know who I know know who I am and how where I stand because it's not the first time I've talked about this stuff at all. Um, and our church is very diverse; it's predominantly minorities. We're probably about eighty percent minorities, and so you know that that's my family, that's my people. So of course I'm gonna stand up and talk about it. Um, all the all the people that follow me on social media for the for the most part they get it; they know who I am. So I, I don't really have like a lot of trolls or, you know, but there was a couple posts that I put up that there was a few people that put stuff up and I don't know who they were. They weren't from my church or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, even when I put some stuff up about the the looting and stuff like that, and I put multiple, multiple posts up, but one guy was just, you know, kind of attacking me like, why aren't you denouncing the loot, the looting? I see what you're doing. You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I challenged him. I was like, did you watch some of my previous posts? <laughs> I don't just be. And, and the, so the thing is, is I, I agree. Language is so important. Um, I'm an author. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. You know, language is I'm a rapper, spoken word artist. So words are very important. But I think in this culture we're in right now, Sometimes there's people that are so overly sensitive, and if you don't say the words or the phrases exactly like they want, or, oh, you didn't denounce, you know, the looting, so what's wrong with you? It's like, wait a minute, did you take in context everything I've been talking about in the last couple days or right. the last couple weeks or months or years of my life? Um, how can you think that I'm for that? Like, I understand the frustration, absolutely, and I understand the anger. And there's a place for anger. Anger can be a catalyst for change. But the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. And when you destroy someone's property and livelihood and their business, like that's sin. And right. I'm not I'm not advocating for that. But just because I didn't clearly spell that out, you know, in that post, you know, and so I challenged them. I said, I said, man, my heart is grieved. I know those people that their business is burned down. Those are our partners. Like mm-hmm. we've done stuff together. The restaurant that burned down, we bought hundreds of meals from them on Friday to feed people in our, on our in our community. And then Saturday, they their business burned down. So have do you know those people? Have you partnered with them? Right. Our community <laughs> place. If not, right. then be quiet. You can unfollow. <laughs> like you know. And so and of course there was a bunch of other people that jumped on and were like, you know, having my back and, and right. Stuff. You know, I just always tell people, just be nice, though. You know, be nice. We can be firm, but, you know, right. we need to go off on somebody. But, you know, he ended up responding back and apologized. Uh, but some people, they, you know, they want to just, they, they're not going to apologize. They're going to keep going in and saying stuff. And so, you know, generally on social media, I don't respond to that stuff. But I don't have a whole lot of people that come at me with that at this point because so many people, they just kind of know, you know, where we're at and, you know, for the most part, we've had favor and, and God's given us this, 
you know, respect that most people just respect what we do. Yes. What do you think is the hardest thing for people who aren't directly affected by Black Lives Matter for them to understand? What do you think is the hardest part for them to get? Yeah, I think the hardest part for them to get is because they, they may not be affected by it because they don't have relationships with people of color. So if you don't have, you know, hey, well, I, I know my mailman's Black or, you know, my friend at work's Hispanic, but if you're not really in a real relationship closely with someone of color and you've had experiences and you know their background and they've shared stories and you've you know lamented for some things they've been through if you've never had that experience or you don't have any f- real friends of color then for a lot of white people it's it's off their radar so they don't they don't even realize the struggle and the experience and the systematic the things that are in policy and systems that have held people of color back you know even if you just look at you know, the wealth gap between African-Americans and, and white people, you know, the African-Americans have one-tenth of the wealth. And now they do make less money, but I think it's like they, they make um, 60% of the amount of money, but they only have 10% of the amount of wealth. Well, if you look through all American history with, you know, Jim Crow laws and racism and the way redlining was and the way real estate markets were and mortgages were given out and just education, all those things, those systems that were put in place, it's really hard for African-Americans to break through that. Um, Some absolutely do, but it's really difficult because of these systems that were put in place. And so people of color, Hispanics as well, um, are behind in so many, in so many ways. And so, but a lot of white people just don't realize that they'll say, well, you know, I, I mean, everybody's pretty much equal, you know, like we had a black president, and, you know, they'll just make comments <laughs> like that, and then they'll jump in and be like, well, you know, they hear Black Lives Matter, and they well, all lives matter. You know, and my answer to that is like, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> of course all lives matter, you know. We're made in the image of God. All of us matter. But right now, Black lives are not being treated in the same way that white lives are or other, you know, other lives. And so we need to speak up for them. We need to help them right now, you know. And so at the core of the message of Black Lives Matter, I totally get it. I agree with that. I don't agree with everything that the organization itself advocates for, but a challenge that a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Eric Mason made, he's a pastor and an author, and I, I love his stuff. He's spoken at our conference before. And you know, he said, what if, what if the church, the capital C church, would have already been speaking up for black people and, and people of color? And what if, what if the church would have been the ones that formed Black Lives Matter? Mm. How different could have that movement looked if we would have been the ones that stepped up, you know, when, when the stuff started breaking out with Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and all these other names, these hashtags that have happened over the years, when the church, the white evangelical American church, for the most part, just stayed quiet, you know? Mm-hmm didn't really say anything, maybe didn't really know what to do, or maybe said, well, you know, yeah, we're praying for those people, but that's not really affecting our church. Right. You know? And now there's finally being a wake-up call. So even though it's been a difficult season, um, I'm hopeful because there's been a lot of progress, and we've been having conversations with churches and leaders that we've never had these kind of conversations before. Um, they're finally getting, they're getting woke, and so it's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How are you and your family doing during this whole quarantine? Yeah, so we're we're good. Um, you know, here we're here in Florida. So in Florida, 
in May, things started to lift. And the case number here, at least in our area, in Miami, it was a little, it was higher. But in Tampa, um, the amount of cases was really low. And so um, we didn't know anyone that was sick. And, you know, it was, it was pretty safe to begin to come back out and things began to open up little by little. And, you know, all through the month of May, it just kept getting better and better. And the case numbers kept getting lower. And we're like, okay, you know, we're going to get back to normal. And a lot of churches were beginning to reopen at the end of May, beginning of June. And we just felt like we're going to wait a little longer. So my church, we said, well, we're going to let, let all them go first. And we're going to learn from them. And we feel like, you know, a lot of our people are a little more um, hesitant anyways, because we're predominantly minorities and they've been impacted more by COVID. And so we said, uh, let's just wait. And uh, and a lot of those churches only had like 30, 40 percent of the, the congregation coming back at first. And we were just felt like that's not a win. That's going to feel deflating. The room is pretty empty and a lot yeah. of volunteers don't feel ready to come back and you know, it's just, let's just wait another month and a half. And by that time, if everything stays in the same trajectory, um, it'll be, it'll be good. And we can reopen with 60, 70% of people and it'll be more normal. People won't have to wear masks as much and it'll, it'll be a strong opening and we can begin to, you know, move forward, uh, with the new normal. And so, uh, that was the plan. Uh, but then about three weeks ago, we started to see an uptick in, in cases and, um, fast forward to, you know, this week, it's been the highest of uptick. And so we had in, in Hillsborough County, we had the, at the most like back in April, like 60 cases a day, new cases. And uh, but it dropped in May to where we only had like 10 cases, 20 cases, some days, five cases. So we're like, oh, man, we're trending in the right direction. This is good. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, the beginning of uh, beginning of June, we started to hit like 100 cases a day. We're like, oh, snap. Like we never saw that before. Right. And, go back down the next day it was like 40 and we're like okay you know there's this little blip in the radar they're testing more and they are testing more but um this week we saw you know new cases amounts in the 300s and then uh wednesday we hit 700 uh and then thursday and today it's been in the 400s and so it's just yeah it's it's crazy and now we did yesterday for the first time have uh some people in our church that that tested positive and they're 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 not very sick. They're younger. They they don't have fevers or anything. They're just quarantining. They're like, yeah, we got headaches and little body aches, but we're coughing a little bit. But we're we're okay. We're getting better actually already. But um, you know, so it's it's like it's getting real. So now the disappointing thing is we realize like, man, we're probably not going to be able to open back up next month. Now we have to push back indefinitely. And so just to be honest with you, it's disappointing. Either like we're trying to re-rent back up and, you know, everyone's getting tired of online church because we miss each other, you know, that mm -hmm. in-person in in interaction and community. But uh, now like we're having to go back to the drawing board and say, yeah, we're going to be doing this probably now for a couple more months. Um, so we have to kind of reinvent ourselves again. And um, so we're, yeah, so pray for us and pray for every church, you know, and yes. we didn't reopen because some of these churches that reopened or now they're like, yeah, we might have to close now. And that would have been even tougher, I think. How can people get in contact with you? Yeah, the best way to contact me, um, you can follow me on social media and uh, it's real easy. It's Urban D 813. So it rhymes. 813. <laughs> so Urban D 813. Um, you can follow me on uh, Instagram or Facebook and then uh, my YouTube channel is Urban D 813. And we just recently launched uh, the Flavor Fest Urban Leadership Podcast. 
and uh, we have that on the podcast platforms. But if you want to watch it, we do have a video version too, and uh, that's on my YouTube channel, Urban D eight one three. And we've had some some of the same guests. Uh, <laughs> you had Montel Jordan, and actually Montel is a friend of mine, and he was actually on the very first podcast when we launched it uh, about two months ago. And so we've had a lot of different pastors and Christian hip hop artists and entrepreneurs and um, some really interesting conversations we've had. And here's the last question. You ready? Yes, ma'am. If you could have any song be your theme song, when you walked into a room, what would it be and why? <laughs> um, I would say, oh man, that's tough. I, I, I was just going to joke around and say, this is how we do it. Cause we talk about Montel. But, um, I'd say if it was one of my songs, yeah, if it was someone else's song, Montel's, uh, if it was my song, uh, I'd say probably the love our city song. We have a love our city song that I did. And my daughter actually sings on the hook. She just turned Aww. 17. And then uh, another guy from the church raps on it. And, you know, we talking about loving our city and loving our neighbors. We love ourselves. And in a world of hate, you know, we're going to love. And so, uh, yeah, that's on my YouTube channel, too. We did a music video for that song. It's called Love Our City. There's actually two versions of it. Okay. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for, for what you're doing and uh, praying for you and the work you're doing and all the listeners out there. Much love. And uh, it was good to get connected and meet y'all. Stay connected with me. Thank you. Have a good one. Be safe. All right. God bless y'all. Peace. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being on my show. And thank you for your ministry. God is truly going to bless you for showing us that your background, your race, color, or creed has nothing to do with the love of God. And if you would like to be on Worldly Church Girl, click the link below, shoot me an email, and let's see what we can do with that thing. And what I tell y'all, you need to hit that subscription button. You don't want to miss another episode. What are you waiting for? Click, 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 click it. And as always, thanks for joining your one and only Worldly Church Girl.